Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello and welcome to the second of our episode. What, what is this? Is this everything everything you ever needed to know about COP but were afraid to ask? That was almost Frostian, actually. Hello. Good evening. Good evening and, and welcome. welcome. A lot of people have commented on the similarities between he and I. Does that make me Nixon? <laughs> Now, before we get into it, I have been asking you various questions about the cops so I can wrap my head around it. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, what is the thing that people would have been to in real life that most resembles a cop summit? Is it like going to a big conference? I was at the one in Copenhagen, actually. Oh, that's that's widely held as the disastrous one, isn't it? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, I've been blamed for many things, but not the failure of the Copenhagen summit. I tried to sort of save the Copenhagen summit late on, and some people think I made a little bit of a difference. But anyway, we can leave that to history. So so is it like, you know, if you work in a particular industry and there's a big do at a conference centre, is, is it like that? Are there stalls? I mean, there's quite a lot of, well, there was in Copenhagen, there's quite a lot of, it's not just the world leaders and the environment ministers and the delegations. It's also all of the sort of the NGOs, the social movement, they all gather. Yeah, they're kept sort of somewhat at arm's length. In the dying days of the and hours of the Copenhagen summit, we were I always remember I mean, Gordon Brown did this extraordinary thing, which is when people thought there was gonna be literally no agreement, he basically stayed up all night, essentially sort of um what's the right word, kind of barking at lots of 
world leaders, non-world leaders, who all the countries who were just assembled in this one room to try and agree this three-page paper. It was an, a sort of masterclass in negotiations. But the most bizarre thing about the whole meeting was that there seemed to be no control of the people coming in and out of the meeting. You know, people sort of would wander in and out in a kind of slightly bizarre sort of way, kind of watching this unfolding, and you didn't quite know whether they were a delegation or were they not. Or it's slightly like trying to get into the party and saying, oh, you know, my mate's in there. <laughs> I, I'm a friend of Barack Obama and he's in there. Or I'm a friend of Hillary Clinton. You know, would you let me in? Right. OK, so I'm, I'm starting, I think I'm starting to grasp it. Sorry. And then after that, Gordon then said to me, well, we've got this accord. Don't screw it up now. And he buggered off back to London. And then it was when I was about to go to bed, having been up for you know, 24 hours, that then Pete Betts rang me to say, it's all going down the Swanee. You're going to have to come and do something. And that's when I went and made this speech to try and help save the summit. And uh, the UK microphone, it won't surprise you to hear, given my technological challenges, was a <laughs> link. I had to do it from the US microphone. There is a video of this. And unlike the video of the trampoline incident or the geothermal pools in Iceland, I'm quite keen for this video to... to be released but the it seems to be somewhere in the un vaults and although <laughs> my friend todd stern who was the u.s climate negotiator has seen it uh i have not seen it recently and what are we focusing on in this episode then well we're talking about something absolutely crucial which is the science we set the scene in the first episode about the history of the climate crisis the cops and all that now we're into the real meat of why is the science telling us that the action that is required is so urgent and, and we've got this brilliant scientist, a friend of mine who I actually I met on a climate change demonstration, Emily Shuckborough, um, while I was the climate change secretary. And honestly, she's absolutely brilliant at explaining uh, sort of what the science is telling us. And then, you know, I think we're really privileged to have two incredibly important voices from um, the global south, uh, Salim ul Haq from Bangladesh on the threats facing climate-vulnerable countries, including Bangladesh, and then former President Mohammed Nasheed of the Maldives. Some people remember President Nasheed because he did a cabinet meeting underwater to draw attention to the plight um, of the Maldives. But it's really getting into the science and also then the scale of the threat to lots of vulnerable countries. And just very quickly, we should say, just in case you're scratching your head and thinking it's odd that they don't mention it, um, we recorded these interviews before the UN's climate science body, the IPCC, released its recent report, this major report, and that's why we don't discuss the findings of that report with this week's guests. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Now, to talk about the science around the climate crisis, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by a, a good and long-standing friend of mine, uh, Emily Shuckborough, who is Director of Cambridge Zero and Reader in Environmental Data Science at the University of Cambridge, and recently featured a lot on Every Time I Read The Guardian in an advert. I was saying just before we switched on the tape that every time I read an article about the environment, there's my friend Emily. Yes, with my kids uh, sitting in the cargo bike. Um, and it was an article primarily about how, you know, all of us can live slightly more sustainable lives. And as we're doing this interview, I, at the end of it, I'm going to hop on my bicycle to go and collect my kids from school. So let's start with this. From your perspective as a climate scientist, let's just answer something very basic, which is lots of people say this is a decisive decade for climate action. Why? It's a decisive decade for climate action because really, unless we move 
immediately from ambitions and pledges to actual action in terms of cutting our emissions, then we really do not have a hope of avoiding the worst impacts of climate change. And is that because once you've emitted the carbon dioxide greenhouse gas emissions, you can't then within reason put it back in so it's a sort of your carbon budget's used up i mean maybe say something about about that because people might think well you know if we if we took action in 2030s why would that not solve the problem the climate responds to the total amount of greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere. You know, once you've put up into the atmosphere a certain amount of, of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, then that's the climate that you're going to get. Uh, I mean, you might be able to try and invent some technologies to start pumping out large amounts of those carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, but we don't, don't have those yet. So uh, in the absence of that, there is like a finite amount of budget of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases that you can put into the atmosphere before you are going to exceed certain temperature thresholds. And once you exceed those temperature thresholds, there are certain impacts that are associated with that, that you would then start to experience. And indeed, we're already starting to experience some of those impacts. And that was where I was going to go next. So we've seen the terrible flooding in Germany, extreme heat in the Pacific Northwest of the US um, and Canada, Pakistan, heat waves. We've seen our own heat waves here. There's been some instant analysis done, hasn't there, by the scientists, which rather suggest that some of these events can be directly linked to climate change, the climate crisis. Well, how would you summarise the evidence? So in terms of heat waves, I think the statement was that it's virtually impossible that some of the heat waves that we've been seeing uh, recently would have occurred had it not been for the climate change that we've seen to date. And I think in terms of heat waves, the connection's pretty obvious. <laughs> if the world as a whole is warming up, then the chances of you having more extreme heat waves are just that much higher. In terms of the flooding events, the connection is perhaps less obvious. Why, why is a warming world, you know, why do you increase the risk of having big flooding events? But it's a, a, a fact associated with the physics that a warmer atmosphere is a wetter atmosphere. And so there's literally more water in the atmosphere in a warmer world to rain down in heavy rainfall events. And that's that's what we've been seeing. Just on this point about the heat waves, people might think, well, one and a half degrees centigrade of warming, or at the moment we're at maybe 1.2. I mean, that doesn't sound that bad. How does 1.2 degrees centigrade of warming produce these much bigger sort of events? It's a really good question, because 1.2 or 1 degrees doesn't sound like a very large amount. It translates into there being quite a big shift in the risk of extreme weather events. I mean, the simple, the simplest way of explaining this is, um, is quite a mathematical one, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's your bell curve. It's my it? bell curve, exactly. Uh, Emily and I had long discussions in run-up to my book uh, about this question. Go on. I'll, I'll do my best. You know, many things in the world come bell-shaped curves. So the average condition is the middle of that bell shape. So think of a bell shape. The average is the middle of that. If you shift that middle of a bell-shaped curve a little bit, then actually the bits that were in what we call the, the tails, so in the kind of the bottom of the bell, shift much closer towards where the middle previously was. 
when we were talking about it um, in, in the run-up to your book, I, I think I drew a little diagram for you, and I think it's much clearer if you see it visually. And, and that's essentially what we're seeing. It means that um, in terms of heat waves, for example, we're seeing heat waves that before any climate change might have been expected to occur you know, once a century or perhaps even less frequently than that are now occurring you know, certainly once a decade or you know, in, in some instances every few years. So that's why, for example, in Doncaster, when it was predicted that there'll be once in a hundred year flooding in parts of my constituency, we've had it twice in 12 years. That's what happens. Exactly. So things that were once a century now become more frequent than that. So that's, if you like, the sort of basic science about where we are. Now, at the COP in Paris in 2015, global leaders said they wanted to limit global warming to well below two degrees and and preferably to 1.5. Why is 1.5 degrees so important? I mean, what, in other words, what's the difference between 1.5 and 2 and 3 and, and so on? There was a, a really important report that came out from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a couple of years ago that, that looked in detail at this question. And whichever area that you look at, you do see a really substantial increase in risk between 1.5 and 2 degrees. So if we look at the risk to society, for example, it's estimated that several hundred million additional people will be exposed to the risks of climate change and extreme poverty as you move between 1.5 and 2 degrees. If you look at the natural world, it's estimated that between two to three times more plant and animal species would experience substantial habitat loss. One of the really iconic examples is coral reefs, where coral reefs are already under severe stress from the impacts of climate change. Um, As you move to 1.5 degrees, then a really substantial number of coral reefs may be severely damaged. At 2 degrees, they may not exist at all. The other real concern between 1.5 and 2 degrees is there are examples where we may pass tipping points. We might pass the point of no return. And an example there would be um, in terms of the polar ice sheets, the the vast ice sheets covering Greenland and West Antarctica. And we're very concerned about the state of those um, ice sheets. And there's real concern that if we uh, if we move between from from 1.5 up to two degrees, then we may pass the point of which of no return for for those ice sheets. And and those ice sheets store within them vast amounts of water, uh, which would translate into really significant metres, many metres of sea level rise over a time period that that we're not certain about, but would be almost certainly irreversible. You've laid out the science, you've laid out the threat. 1.5 degrees um, is the ambition set in Paris. How how far away are we and what's the kind of ambition we need to see? What's your sort of test of the COP26 as a scientist? The sort of slight tragedy is that in Paris, as, as you said at the start, the, the world did come together with these ambitions, you know, a commitment to keep temperatures well below uh, two degrees with an ambition to keep them below 1.5 degrees. But those were ambitions. 
And the reality is that we're not currently on course as a global society for anything like that. Even if we take the pledges, let alone the action, but there's just the pledges that have been put forward, we're still on on course for you know something closer to two, if not higher in terms of temperature rise by the end of the century. And so the critical thing is that those ambitions and those pledges are turned into actual action. If we look at carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, it's slightly depressing, if I'm perfectly honest with you. You know, I remember the time when we were horrified at the idea of concentrations of carbon dioxide going above 400 parts per million. And they did that back in 2015. And it was inconceivable that they would go above 450 parts per million. I remember, you know, times when that was campaigning. And yet they're edging up towards 420 parts per million now. You know, we've moved well beyond the scale of which this is a problem that needs to be addressed in the future. It's a problem that requires immediate action. I mean, just on 1.5, Emily, what would you say to those who, who, who read the sort of reports that there are and the, the analysis that's been done and says, look, it's already could well be out of reach? So we've undoubtedly left it pretty late, frankly, in terms of um, a global response. And, you know, we're starting to be in the zone where it's getting close to being out of reach. But what I would say is that 1.5 is not a magic number. It's not as though we sort of, you know, we we pass 1.5 and then, you know, game over. Anything we can do to keep the increase as low as possible is important. So far, so pessimistic, I think it's fair to say, or or at least realistic slash pessimistic. But your project in Cambridge, your Cambridge Net Zero, is partly, isn't it, about all of the contribution that science can make to solving this problem. And not just science. It's about, it's about generally the ideas and innovations um, that can help support both sides of that, a resilient net zero future for the world. Um, so some of that's about uh, looking at the technological developments that will help support that. But that's also about cultural change. So it's not just about the technologies themselves. It's about looking at new business models, for example. Um, How can we look um, to support healthier lifestyles where we are having a lower impact on the world and around us and that might be by supporting behavioral changes to so people cycle and walk more rather than driving by car as a healthier option it might be in terms of looking at people's diets and supporting um, more plant-based diets and what what can we put in place in order to help incentivize those those changes last question from me you deal with this every day you face these issues every day do you spend most of your days optimistic pessimistic I don't know. Listen, I mean, the science is pessimistic, clearly. So it is possible to be really quite depressed if you spend too much time looking at the science. The element where I'm optimistic, though, and I'm genuinely optimistic, is actually in terms of the role that I have in Cambridge with Cambridge Zero, where it's genuinely inspiring to see how many people across the university and beyond are inspired to all get involved. And it seems to me as though if we can galvanise global society 
in a common mission to create a better future. And who doesn't, frankly, want to be part of creating a better future? I think it it gives people a renewed sense of purpose. It's easy to think, oh my goodness, this is just, you know, the world's coming to an end, this is disastrous doom and gloom. But actually, if we can start to all gather together and do our bit to try and not only prevent that, but actually to create a society that is in more harmony with the world that sustains us, that's supporting nature, that is a more equal society, then that's surely something that everyone would want to be part of. Well, look, um, Emily Chakbra, there's no more important subject we could be talking about. You've been doing incredible work on this uh, throughout your career and certainly uh, also now you've got to go and pick up your daughter's uh, from school uh, on your bicycle. Um, thank you so much for joining us. No, it's a pleasure always. Thank you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are going to turn now to how the climate crisis is already affecting countries around the world. And first, we're going to speak to Professor Salim Al-Huk, who is the director of the International Centre for Climate Change and Development, which is based in Bangladesh. Uh, Salim Al, thank you so much for talking to us. Hello there. Now, you're speaking to us from Dhaka in Bangladesh, which is one of the most climate vulnerable countries in the world. Um, I wondered if we could start by asking you to explain why Bangladesh is particularly vulnerable to the climate crisis and maybe give people an idea of the effects that you're already seeing there. Sure. So I guess it's a combination of uh, geography, population and poverty. We are a a country of less than 150,000 square kilometres sitting on the delta of two of the biggest rivers in the world, the Ganges and the Brahmaputra, a very flat, very low-lying delta. The population is uh, nearly 170 million people now. So that gives us a 
a population density of well over a thousand people, which is something you normally see in city states like Singapore and Hong Kong, but not in countries like Bangladesh. So highly dense population, and a relatively poor population. Although we are making good progress in development terms uh, over the years, but nevertheless we are one of the poorest countries. So those combinations uh, together. Uh, make us particularly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, which include regular flooding, which is becoming uh, uh, more frequent and more intense from the rivers that I mentioned, uh, regular cyclones that come in from the Bay of Bengal into the coastal zone of the country. Cyclones themselves are natural, but because of the increased global uh, temperature, they are now becoming more intense, and then. Uh, even though we are primarily a delta with a lot of water, uh, there are parts of the year when parts of the country, particularly in the northwest, doesn't have enough water. So we do have even drought conditions in a, a part of the country during part of the year. And now we have heat waves as a, as an additional element. Temperatures are going up and causing problems uh, for crops and for people as well. And how are the predictions then? Uh, how, how is this expected to get worse in the future?、Uh, predictions are definitely not good. During the monsoon period, we are going to get heavier rainfall. In fact, right now, over the last twenty-four hours, we've had some very severe rainfall in the southern part of the country. So, the impacts of floods and cyclones, as I said, are going to get more severe、uh, going forward,、uh, and we know that, and we are preparing for it. But they are definitely going to cause a lot of damage and a lot of harm. And and just in terms of that damage, what what does that mean for Bangladesh? Is it people losing homes? Is it vast areas of the country becoming in in uninhabitable? Well, it it's a combination of a good news story and a bad news story. I'll start with the good news story. The good news story is that Bangladesh has known these problems for quite a number of years, and we have invested quite significantly. In being much, much, much better prepared than we used to be. So, in years past, when we had super cyclones or we had big floods, thousands of people would lose their lives. In fact, cyclones have killed more than hundreds of thousands of people in in this part of the world in in past decades. That doesn't happen anymore. We have one of the best cyclone warning systems in the whole world, and the warning system is now very elaborate. Everybody gets it.、Uh, evacuation is is. Uh, something that we are very good at doing. In fact,、uh, I was just noticing the、uh, the unfortunate deaths in Germany. Well over a hundred people lost their lives. In Bangladesh, that would not happen. People would get the warning and evacuate. They won't die. The houses would get inundated, and their crops will get inundated, and the, the there will be a lot of devastation. But human lives lost. We have brought down that to a minimum in Bangladesh through a huge. Investment over the years in improving、uh, the warning and the evacuation, and and your work is around adaptation.、Um, I guess the cyclone warning system is an example of that. Can you talk to us a bit more about the ways in which Bangladesh has and will adapt to the threat of the climate crisis? I would argue that Bangladesh. Is one of the most adaptable countries and is at the forefront of、uh, taking measures and investing in adaptation to climate change and making a lot of progress. We haven't solved all the problems, but we are making a lot of progress. Three million people、uh, get the cyclone warnings. They know when to go, where to go. We had a, a super cyclone about a year and a half ago in May of 2020 called Amphan, 
which is interesting because Amphan was a super cyclone that in previous decades would have accounted for tens of thousands of lives lost. It was only a few dozen lives where fishermen who were out at sea didn't get back to land in time. Almost three million people went to shelters and survived. However, a year later, on the anniversary of Amphan, just uh, in May this year, my, my colleagues from my center and some journalists went to that region to see how people were. And even though they didn't lose their lives, many thousands of them are still not able to go home because their hopes were destroyed or their crops were salinized with seawater. Many of them are forced to migrate to Dhaka City and live in the slums here. So this is what we in the climate change uh, you know, language that you're familiar with called loss and damage from climate change. You know, they, they survived, they didn't die, but they lost their livelihoods. And, you know, many of them told us, they said, I don't know why I lived. You know, if I lost my whole livelihood, what was the point of living? And they're sort of very depressed uh, as a result, which you can imagine. So I don't want to overhype the fact that we are able to save lives if we can't save their livelihoods at the same time. And that's really what we are now looking at in terms of trying to invest in enabling people not just to survive with their life, but also to have some means of rehabilitation afterwards and, and enable them to have maybe a different livelihood. Maybe they have to move and enable them to move. And let me ask you this question finally. If you talk to somebody in Bangladesh about the climate crisis, how would they say it's affecting their lives? What's the popular consciousness on climate? Well, I would say, uh, uh, Ed, in Bangladesh, 165 million people plus has the highest awareness of the word or the phrase climate change in the whole world. In Bangla, it's called Jolobahyu Poriborton. Everybody in Bangladesh knows about it. Uh, you ask them what it is and they'll, they'll say, you know, it's raining heavily today. That's Jolobahyu Poriborton. We had a cyclone. That's Jolobahyu Poriborton. If anything, they over-attribute everything to, to climate change now. So, you know, we are uh, uh, over-aware of climate change and everything is climate change. Uh, but in a, it, uh, the good thing is everybody knows about it. The bad thing is we attribute everything to it when everything is not obviously human-induced climate change. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about Bangladesh and about how the climate crisis is affecting other countries. It's so interesting to talk to you. Salim Al-Huk, thank you very much. Well, I'm delighted and privileged to say that we're joined now by President Nasheed, former president of the Maldives from 2008 to 2012 and current speaker of the parliament in the Maldives. President Nasheed, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much Ed, for having me. Uh, it's lovely to see you. Um, look, I, I must, we obviously want to talk about the climate issue, but I must start asking you how you're doing because you, how your health is because you had a horrific attempt on your life in May um, of this year, so how are you? How are you faring? I'm I'm so sorry about that, and I, I hope you're okay. Well, I thank you very much for asking. Uh, you know, a cat has nine lives, so I'm around. It was very close, um, but I am very very fortunate to be alive. Uh, our surgeons did an amazing job in the Maldives. They had 20 hours of surgery on me, and then I was flown to Germany where I was seen by German doctors. And now um, I am being seen by a very competent doctor in Bath. And so I hope I am in good hands. 
I hope so too. And I and it's it's great to see you and 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 see you uh, doing so much uh, better. Let's talk about this very important year that we're in. At the Copenhagen COP in 2009, and indeed before you were one of the voices, the most prominent voices, pushing for a 1.5 degree centigrade uh, temperature target. Talk to us about the situation in the Maldives and the difference that a 1.5 degree world and a 2 degree world make to the Maldives. Well, uh, thank you very much. And it is now getting very clear and obvious that it's not just only the Maldives. We usually hear about floods and lives lost from Bangladesh and from developing countries. But as I was in hospital in Germany, I started hearing about exactly the same news uh, from Germany and, and Belgium. You know, Serbia is burning, uh, there's fires, forest fires everywhere. Climate uh, seems to have changed. What do you observe in the Maldives about the changes that the climate crisis is, is wreaking? You know, the, the waves are stronger, the rains are more, uh, the sea is rough, the ocean currents have changed, the sea is much warmer, the reefs are dying, and therefore uh, we are losing a lot of biodiversity, and with that, we are losing our livelihood. Uh, we fish one by one, and to do that, we build the fish with smaller fish. Now, if we lose the reefs, we also lose the small bait fish, and that has a huge impact on our fishing industry. When we also lose the reefs, uh, we have a stronger impact on our shorelines. So, and then there is coastal erosion. Because sea levels have already risen, it's contaminating our water lens. And so we are now having to desalinate water. So in a sense, the waves, everything is strong. Everything is in the wrong, wrong time. Everything is more. I hesitate to ask this question, but does there come a point, and I know this is very hard to pin down, where the Maldives becomes uninhabitable? Well, that's why I like to talk about adaptation. Uh, you know, countries and islands will become uninhabitable if we stand around without doing anything about it. You know, we don't have one single hill. We're just one meter above the sea level. To answer your question, yes, we, we will be, our islands would become, it's going to be, very difficult to live on our islands in, in the next, um, I don't know how many years, but uh, uh, we must find adaptation measures so that we are able to stay, stay around and, and live on these islands. Just for our listeners, just as a factual point, how much of the Maldives is more than a metre above sea level? None, none, just zero. So that is the scale of the challenge. President Nasheed, you are a, uh, a strong voice in the Climate Vulnerable Forum. Um, obviously, we have COP26 coming up. What, what would be your message to leaders at COP26 about what the experience of your country teaches us uh, about the need for ambitious action? Well, most certainly mitigation, which means they just have to agree 
raise their ambition on the, the amount of carbon that they are willing to stop emitting to the atmosphere. Um, so they must uh, turn their electricity to renewable forms. Uh, and that must happen very, very quickly. Uh, I hope that countries agree on that. Uh, at the same time, we must be looking at adaptation measures uh, and therefore how we are going to fund them and also uh, how we are going to actually do them. Historically, over previous COPs, how much of a uh, share of uh, the discussion do you think has been given to climate vulnerable countries? Well, none actually. No one is actually asking us. No one is measuring what is happening to us. And how optimistic do you feel about COP26 in, in those terms specifically, that that will be different this time? I, I believe that it will be, it can be different because uh, it's now happening in Serbia, it's happening in uh, Germany, it's happening in Belgium, uh, because it is happening in the West, in, in, in rich countries, in developed countries. And more and more, the news is, is just full of extreme weather uh, and, and the impact that it is having on lives here, flooding in London. I think, therefore, it's, it, it will become election issues and people must, politicians, political parties, will come out with greener manifestos. And uh, we must therefore uh, push these agendas uh, to the front. And, you know, uh, thank you for having this discussion. Well, look, uh, President Nasheed, um, I've known you a long time. It's great to hear you speaking so articulately about this literally life and death issue for people in the Maldives and so many other places. Thank you so much for joining us. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Thank you to our guests for this episode, Emily Shuckberg, Salim Al-Huk and President Mohammed Nasheed. Now, having heard about the stakes in tackling the climate crisis next week, we will be exploring what world leaders need to do in the run-up to COP26 and at the summit itself. We'll be talking to Pete Betts, Fahama Yamin and Salim Al-Huk again about what success would look like at the COP and what the political challenges will be in making that happen. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. All the research and guest booking is done by Joel Pierce, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. I've been Jeff Lloyd. And this has been your guide to COP26 by Reasons to be Cheerful. 